us getting together annually to celebrate the Lord's Supper makes my heart filled with joy. This is so God glorifying. And is is incredibly reflective of what we can anticipate in the kingdom to come. Being with brothers and sisters in Christ and enjoying the intimate fellowship of being in the body of Christ. Eating and drinking together, celebrating what Christ has accomplished through the church for all eternity. I want to take a moment and thank all the volunteers because there's just countless hours that go into making this happen. And I want to give a round of applause to Sister Dan for her incredible work. So before I get into the message tonight, and, and I will do my very best to be brief, I want to bring just a little bit of clarity to this morning's message. It's, it's always difficult to tackle something new. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why preachers don't tackle things that are new. Because there's always the potential of being misunderstood. So this afternoon I kind of threw this together. And, and I may need to rethink about it because I only have a couple hours to think about it. But I want you to understand that in the morning message, my focus was the green box. And I am not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that the only moral imperative that we have as a church to now live by is to love one another. That's not what I'm suggesting. I want you to realize that way before the law was given, in Exodus chapter 19, 20, and forward, there was already a moral law in existence. There was already a moral law in existence. So I am not suggesting that all moral law is simply one single commandment, love one another. That's not what I'm trying to show you. I think about in the yellow boxes, everything that we can study in Genesis concerning what's right and wrong, everything that we know, beginning in chapter 4, where God tells Cain, you know, if you do well, you will be accepted. Right there, he gave you a choice between right and wrong. And then you keep marching your way through the narrative, and chapter by chapter, you can come up with this oral tradition of law that's being transmitted person to person, family by family. But when you get to Exodus chapter 19 20, you're now confronted with a law that's given in stone. And it's now very formal, and it's in your face. And that law reigns supreme all the way into the days of Christ. That's the law that Christ is keeping. That's the law that Christ is talking about in, for example, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the law that they're accusing him of breaking when he's a Sabbath breaker. And what I want us to recognize tonight, and why I want to pause this minute and talk about this, is that the law of Christ supersedes the law of Moses. And to that, we are to celebrate tonight. To that, we are to acknowledge what a great work the Lord has done. 
How many of you have ever read or listened to Pilgrim's Progress? You've ever read? Okay. Do you remember the pack that's on his back that's heavy and overwhelming and just can't? You know what that pack is? That's the whole law. That is the whole law. And, and he can't wait to ditch that. All of us that have been in the military, you wore a sternum strap before. You know what I'm talking about? The sternum strap. The Greeks, the shoulder, the Marines. You get, no, you're tough. You don't wear that. Right, okay. I should have figured that. Uh, they haven't discovered the sternum strap yet. It's an evolutionary thing. They'll get in a few years. But, but how many can remember that your time, the last time you had something heavy, and you just pop that so that it can, can be released, and then it drops off the back. Not if you know what I'm talking about. And it's incredible. It's like the relief of release. Please understand that Jesus Christ reached out and pushed the little pins in your sternum strap. Are you getting that? And said, let it go. Jettison that heavy load. Now, that doesn't mean that we lose all moral imperatives. I'm not suggesting that. So, what I want to remind you of is everything communicated in Genesis as an imperative is still applicable to the body of Christ. And everything communicated as an imperative by Christ and his apostles is still applicable to us today. Okay, so please understand that distinction. Think about Genesis 26.5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Which ones? Do you understand it? And get, by the time you get to 26, you have no idea what commandments, statutes, and laws we're talking about? This is not the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law has not been given yet. These are oral traditions that have been passed down from Adam through the generation that people knew was right and wrong, and Abraham is recognized as keeping them. When you get to Romans chapter number 2, listen to the language that Paul talks about. Paul says, for all who have sinned without the law, this is the NASB, by the way, this is the New American, New American Standard Bible 95, the LSB is the same way. They have taken the time to put an uppercase L next to every reference in their positive is the Mosaic Law. For all who have sinned without the law, so all those who are living outside of Israel, that have no idea that there is a law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Do you see the distinction he's making right here? For it is not hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, so they don't have the Mosaic law, they become a law to themselves. The easiest way to illustrate this is when you dial 911 and you make a complaint, somebody's breaking into my house. You have now put yourself under that law for the rest of your life. And if you ever do anything like that, you will be judged by the very fact that you knew that that was wrong, even though you've never read the law of Moses ever in your life. When you called up and said, get someone over here right now, 
Someone is stealing my lawnmower, my bike. You now know that stealing is what? And you put yourself under that law whether you have it or not. This is what Paul is trying to communicate here. So the law we were talking about this morning is this law right here with this uppercase L. So now I want to talk about the supper of the new covenants. Because I want us to make a big deal of this. I want us to grasp the depth of what we're talking about. One of the most difficult things about getting the magnitude of the scripture is you know so much. So you know at this last Passover, we're going last supper. Please understand that the disciples did not know that. They, did, they, they were ambushed. They were caught completely off guard. They were not prepared for him to transition them to a Lord's Supper. From their perspective, they were doing the same Passover Supper that they'd done the year before and the year before. And you know what they were anticipating? Many more last suppers. Just, I mean, Passover is just like this one. Right. They weren't thinking, my Savior's going to die on a cross in just a few days. <laughs> That's not what they were asked. So with that backdrop, I want us to imagine the significance of what happens. When Jesus Christ takes that cup, there were four cups at the Paschal meal. And when he grabs one of the four cups, whichever one he did, they say it's the third, but we don't know for sure. And he says, this is my blood. That's a jaw. Like we sit there, Dr. Wilson, we've heard it so many times. You've grown up hearing it. You've participated in so many Lord's suppers. How many are like that? Incredible numbers of Lord's suppers. That we miss what it would have been like, Travis, to be at that table. And he dares to say, Mike, this is my blood. Everybody knew this wasn't his blood. What was this in the cup? It was good old-fashioned wine that they had every Passover, like the last one, and the one before, and the one before. And Jesus hadn't said that every Passover. He hadn't said it the year before. He hadn't said it two years before. He hadn't said it three years before. If they did three, better how you count. And now he dares to suggest that this wine is my blood of the new covenant. They were ambushed, thoroughly unprepared to hear those words. Where did their minds race to? They have no New Testament. The only context they have for blood is Exodus. They immediately raced back to when Moses took blood and inaugurated the covenant in Exodus chapter 19. They draw parallels that are incredible. 1,500 years earlier, when Moses took that blood, and wouldn't God that we had a good old way of illustrating this. I wish that we had something that was washable and we could just splatter it out here. And I know some of you would just be scrambling to make sure it didn't get on your clothes. You understand what I'm saying, Mike? There would be some quick movements. Because we wouldn't want this hitting us, right, sister? 
Please understand the significance of that. So gentlemen, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Their mind is racing with every new covenant promise they can think about. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they have been living in anticipation of this. Now, let's be fair. Their idea of the inauguration of the new covenant was Israel reigning supreme over the Romans. And this is why Peter is ready to die for the Savior. They're talking about, is this enough swords? Those are the conversations they're having. He starts talking about who's betraying him, and they're looking around the table. Nod your head, you're tracking where I'm at. You've read the story enough. So, draft the parallels. On the eve of Israel's salvation from Egypt, Yahweh institutes the Passover meal. And on the eve of our, our being the Israel of God, our being the Ecclesia, whatever, body of Christ, whatever word you want to use, I'm fine with any of them. Our salvation from slavery to sin, Christ is now instituting the Lord's Supper. And he says, he took the bread, and when he gave it thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But wait a minute, 1,500 years earlier, Yahweh told Moses, this day, this Passover day, shall be a memorial day. Are you seeing the parallels? Not your head, you're seeing the parallels. These are incredible. Saved from Egypt, saved from sin, Passover, Lord's Supper, blood from animals, blood from the Son of God. These are staffing. These parallels are incredible. On the left side of the screen, the Old Covenant, Yahweh with Israel, Christ with the church, the Passover, the Lord's Supper, the blood of goats and bulls, the eternal blood of the Son of God, mediated through Moses, mediated through our uh, Christ, our mediator. Hebrews chapter 8 calls the Old Covenant obsolete. The New Covenant is eternal. The law of Moses replaced by the law of Christ. Delivered from physical slavery, delivered from slavery to sin and death. The Mosaic Covenant is not about forgiveness, and the New Covenant is all about forgiveness. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, calls the Old Covenant a ministry of death. And then he'll juxtaposition that with the ministry of the Spirit. Why are you telling us this? Because we are all, each and every one of us, me, you, and us, are so guilty of swallowing a little bit of grape juice, chunking down a cracker, and going home. And we're supposed to be remembering the most amazing thing that's happened in human history. We get together as the body of Christ, 500 believers in this room. We are totally united in our union that Christ is King and He's coming again. That He saved us from slavery to sin and the bondage of death. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've never experienced deliverance 
he did for us. He made it possible for me to become holier. Not just imputed righteousness, but a very practical holiness. Right. In other words, I used to be characterized by filling the blank, whatever it was, losing my temper, being incredibly selfish, having a profane mouth. I don't care what you do. Wandering eyes. Pick a sin. And Christ is transforming me. Not my therapist. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is working on me. I can see a change in my life. What I'm saying to us tonight is when we swallow that grape juice, if we take that cracker, celebrate the reality that Christ is working in your life. Be excited about the fact that I'm not as anxious as I used to be. I have a greater reliance on Christ. I'm not as anxious for the future. My hope is in Christ, not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. That's right, sir. This is supposed to be more than choking down some drink and swallowing a cracker. So many times it feels like the Lord's Supper is merely a celebration of going to heaven when I die. But that, my friends, is wholly insufficient. We are celebrating much more than that. We are remembering, we are celebrating, and we are anticipating. You can think about it like this. We are looking back at the cross. We are looking forward to the kingdom to come. We are looking up for our return to the Redeemer to return. And don't forget about this. We're looking at one another. I don't need a person leaving the room and wandering around. I need brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Lord like I know the Lord. And we have a common bond. We love each other. We pray for each other. We care for each other. We hug each other. We love each other. Yes. Up to see our Lord, to each other for the weather, back to remember, forward to anticipate the kingdom to come. All in one remembrance. Yes. All in one Lord suffering. It's incredible. We are deliberately pausing to remind ourselves that Christ's death inaugurated a new covenant between Yahweh and those who believe. If you want to look in your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at it this morning. We're going to dig this a little deeper. I'm trying to pull this morning with tonight and culminate with the Lord's Supper so that it feels cohesive. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, please. 3. Sorry. 3, 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? We don't think about that enough. 
have more glory. Do you understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to take dead people and make them alive? Where's the family out? You said to me, your youngest put their faith in Christ. Number one, we pray that that is true, genuine, real, authentic, and is a lifetime commitment to Christ. Please understand that if that little girl got saved this week, it was a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, she's not born again and cannot be born again. Hey, let me say it differently. How many people did the Tower of the Stone get saved? How many? The Tower of the Stone, Sister, I'm saying the law. How many people got saved by reading the law? They read those Tower of Stones and they were born again. How many? Nil. So when we juxtaposition, when we juxtaposition the glory of the law, to the glory of the Spirit, every single person that gets saved, it's glorious. Amen. It's amazing. He goes on though, he's not done. For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The ministry of righteousness, what are we talking about there? We're talking about both the imputation of righteousness and the outgoing working of practical righteousness. How do we know that? Because of these words right down here, are being transformed. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because all of the glory that it surpasses it. For if, verse 11, if that which was brought to an end came with glory, much more was what is permanent have glory. You see what he's doing right here? He's juxtapositioning the new covenant with the old covenant. And the new covenant is permanent, and the old covenant is not. It's obsolete. Hebrews chapter number 8. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to them, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Imagine for just a moment that there is a physical veil hanging over all unsaved people in this room. And we pray there's not one. But take a Sunday morning worship service. And imagine that as we come through the doors, if you're saved, there's no veil. And if you're not saved, there's a veil hanging over your face. Are you getting what I'm saying? A physical veil is hanging over your face. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to zoom into the auditorium. And when someone puts their faith in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, we actually see a veil being lifted. Yes. That's the illustration of what he's saying right there. That's the idea. Every Israelite that's not yet born again, and they weren't, had a veil over their face. But you have had the veil lifted, William. You see clearly. Yes, in this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, 
The veil is removed. Now he really starts mixing here. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord are being, what's it say? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from who? From the Lord, who is the Spirit. So I'm wrapping it up. Please, I'm wrapping it up. I hear the babies crying. I've got it. We are remembering and celebrating, number one, the ministry of the Spirit. Number two, the ministry of righteousness. Number three, the lifting of the veil. Number four, the freedom in Christ that we have. And number five, Mike, the Christ-like transformation that's happening one day at a time as we're changed one degree at a time more like Christ. And by the way, you can think of it like this. We're going to keep doing this annually. So I want you to think for just a moment. What will Christ have changed in my life one year from now? When I'm back in this auditorium right here, when I'm back in this NPR room right here, and we're celebrating the Lord's Supper as a collective body of Christ, over a meal like a church did in court, and you think to yourself, what was I struggling with in 2024 that I'm no longer struggling with through the power of the Holy Spirit? And let me tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, it might not be a big sin. You know what I mean? A big sin. It might be something like, I just wasn't as grateful a person as I should have been. And I am going to work on being more characterized as gracious and grateful. And 12 months from now, you look back at the last 12 months and you say, the Lord has done a work in my life. And I am experiencing Christ-like transformation. All right, so let me wrap it up. Two little quick points and we're done. When we look at the Synoptic Gospels, 26, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 14, we get some pretty short little narrative of the Lord's Supper. And these are the major points that we see here. He's at the first Lord's Supper. He teaches the disciples that his shed blood will inaugurate the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. He identifies the betrayer. He predicts his impending death. And he warns Peter about denying him. And that's pretty much the summation of what you get. I, for whatever reason, had forgotten how much John 13 and John 14 have to teach us. And I'll do it very quickly. Turn to John 13, please. It's going to be glorious to get here. In chapter 5, it's been a year. Maybe 27, somewhere around there. I just forgot, I guess. The chapter 13 is all about the Lord's Supper. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart the world, to the Father, having loved his own who were with him, he loved them to the end of the supper, when the devil had put them into their heart, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into 
tent, and then he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And then he washes the disciples' feet. And we could talk about that forever. Turn to 1431. Turn to 1431, please. Just so you can see this connection. Look at the very last sentence in 1431. The last sentence. Let me show it to you. Rise. Let us go from here. Rise. What are you saying? I'm saying that you take 13.1 all the way to 14.31, and those two chapters are all being communicated at the Lord's Supper. All of everything there. Two full chapters all about the Lord's Supper. We always run the Matthew Bar. Come on, isn't that our standard broken passage? Look, when's the last time I went to the church? Mark, I'm at John 13 or John 14. So I'm not going to execute it by no means. I know you don't want me to do that. But look, look at 18.1 with me. 18.1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the broken ground and into the garden of Gethsemane. So wait a minute. 13 and 14 happen in the upper room when the Lord's Supper is happening. And then 15, 16, and 17 all are a walk over to where they're going. Three chapters just transition from here to here. And when we get to a church, we're going to unpack every single detail. I want to show you just two small ideas, two tiny ideas. Idea number one is that at that Lord's Last Supper, Jesus gave us for the very first time the new commandments. Now, I know many of you are like, that's not new. I'm not like you. I'm not able to tell Jesus that he said it's new. It's not new. If Jesus said it's new, it's new. You're like, no, I can live in this. No. There is a reason why Jesus said new. You know why? Because he was not wearing a new covenant. And the new covenant needed a new what? Commandment. You don't not wear a new covenant and say, now don't live under Moses. So this new commandment right here is one that you've heard before, love one another. But what you've never seen before is just as I have loved you. That's what you haven't seen before. So now this gives a new idea to why I study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because I study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I study the Sermon on the Mount. I study the parables. I study everything that's there because I want to know how does Jesus love? Because I'm commanded to love like Jesus loves. And how in the world could I dare venture to say I can love like Jesus loves if I don't know how he loves? That's the one idea. And if you're thinking, well, that's just not enough, well, it's pretty interesting, though, in chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In chapter 14, 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. In chapter 15, verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is saying, look for my commandments. Look for them and keep them. So that's point number one. 
Point number two is just as quick. John 14, 16. John 14, 16. John 14, 16. This is the first time Jesus has talked about this. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you a paracletos, a helper, a counselor, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So number one, at this last supper, at this inauguration of the Lord's Supper, we get our new commandments, love one another like Jesus has loved. Dr. Henry getting that. And number two, you get the very first promise that I'm going to call out to the Father and he's going to send you someone to come alongside of you and to do life with you. God, when do you leave? When? April 8th. April 8th. And you're going to basic training? Where? At Fort Jackson. Bless your heart. <laughs> Brother, you're not going alone. You're not going alone. It is a glorious thing. When that drill sergeant is in your face, when life is miserable, when it really, really sucks, and you're wondering, have I made a mistake? Understand that you are not alone, not an orphan. The Holy Spirit of the living God, the Lord himself, is with you. When was the last time you were at a Lord's Supper meal and you thought about, I need to think about the Holy Spirit more. I need to think about my relationship with the Holy Spirit more. All right, why did you bring this to our attention? And I'm almost done. Ezekiel 36 and we're done. With this morning, we look at Jeremiah 31. 31, Jeremiah 31, a new covenant. But in Ezekiel 36, we get two elements that we don't find in Jeremiah. So these two together come together for the new covenant. I will give you a new heart, and I, a new spirit will I put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Amen. And cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Rule number one, love one another. So what are you saying? I'm saying, and I'm wrapping up right now. If you study the synoptic gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see the new covenant. You're going to see the blood. You're going to see the body. You're going to see the promise of forgiveness of sin. Everyone got that? But when you turn to the gospel of John, you're going to see the promise of what the new law is. And you're going to see the promise of the spirit that he's putting inside of you. So what do you think? I think that the Apostle John looked at everything that was written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke and noticed that there was no references whatsoever to the New Commandment 
and to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he said, they've got everything covered in the new covenant except for these two items right here, and I'm going to incorporate that. And when we, the body of Christ, study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get the whole picture. Right. Do you get it? Yeah. Not your head if you get it. Yeah. This is incredible. We need to put more energy as a church in following the leadership of the Holy Spirit in loving one another. Amen. In loving one another. What does that look like? It looks very simple. Every single time you get a prompt to text somebody, pray for somebody, reach out to somebody, send an email, make a phone call, show some form of love, do it! Don't hesitate. The Holy Spirit's telling you, call them. The Holy Spirit's saying, pray right now. The Holy Spirit's saying, give right now. The Holy Spirit's saying, reach out right now. The Holy Spirit's saying, she needs a hug. Pray with her right now. I never pray. Do it. Because there is a reciprocal relationship between following the Holy Spirit and loving one another. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us into loving one another more, which is why we're having the Lord's Supper like this around the table instead of passing it down a pew. Because you know what? We see each other at the table sharing the elements. So go ahead and let's pass out the juice right now. All right, for I received from the Lord and I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. Somebody at the table, take the bread. Somebody at the table, take the bread. And when he had given thanks, so when he had given thanks, he broke it. Break the bread, pass it out, and I will give thanks.
Lord, we love you. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So take, eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup. Take the cup. Make sure everyone has a cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it, remember what Christ did for you. Remember when you were alienated from God, when you were outside of the covenant relationship, when you were spiritually dead, when you had no mind for the things of God, when you were alienated, and now today you're born again. You've been eternally secure in Christ Jesus. All of your sins are forgiven. He promised never to remember there's no condemnation for you. So drink, eat it, drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord God, come. Yes. Come quickly. Yes. Come and establish your kingdom. Until then, rule and reign in our hearts. We pray, oh God, that your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. And then it would start on the trip home tonight. That we wake up in the morning, we go to all our different places of work. That we will go as the salt and light, as the ambassadors of the ministers of your kingdom. And that our testimony will be characterized as those people who love one another. Those people who love others. In Jesus' name.